From the University Council for Educational Administration, I'm John Nash. This is Cafe UCEA. The Cafe is a podcast that aims to unpack social constructs and systems of thinking about education through the story of the people in each episode. We're interested in helping our audience reframe their notions of learning and schooling through real stories from people who are questioning the way we do things, who we are, and how we've been making change. In this episode, Dr. Susan Faircloth, Dr. Holly Mackey, and Dr. Lee Francis engage in a conversation around the role of indigenous peoples and thoughts and ways of knowing. Professors Faircloth, Francis, and Mackey offer a deep discussion on the role and purpose of land acknowledgments, the deconstruction of American mythologies, and the issues in educational leadership they care deeply about. Don't go away. My name is Dr. Susan Faircloth. I'm a professor and director of the School of Education at Colorado State University, and I'm also an enrolled member of the Kahari Tribe of North Carolina. I'm honored to be joined this afternoon by my friends and colleagues, Dr. Holly Mackey and Dr. Lee Francis. The purpose of today's conversation is to engage in a conversation around the role of indigenous peoples and thoughts and ways of knowing and doing in educational leadership. As we begin this conversation, we also want to acknowledge the fact that we're joining you or participating in this conversation in the midst of the annual meeting of the University Council for Educational Administration, UCEA, which is meeting in Columbus, Ohio. Earlier today, I and my Indigenous colleagues had an opportunity to launch the conference with the land acknowledgement. And I'd like to share the words that were shared during that land acknowledgement. So it's with great honor and humility that we acknowledge that the buildings and the lands in which we're meeting this week are built on the ancestral homelands of the Shawnee, Potawatomi, Delaware, Miami, Peoria, Seneca, Wyandotte, Ojibwe, and Cherokee nations and peoples. In offering this land acknowledgement, it's important to recognize that this is only a small step in what has been described as a process of assuming the responsibilities and obligations of being settlers and ultimately colonizers on this land. This responsibility includes a responsibility to think about the ways in which we engage in research, to reflect on our practices, and to think about the ways in which we develop and sustain relationships based on an ethic of reciprocity with indigenous peoples and communities. As scholars, it's imperative that we all commit or recommit to engaging in a justice-oriented thought and practice aimed at deconstructing false colonial ideologies of the superiority and privilege of Western thought and approaches and people. This work begins, but does not end with this land acknowledgement. I'd also like to recognize that the quote that I just shared is from a group at Ohio State University. And this is the quote that speaks to the importance of deconstructing those false colonial ideologies and superiority. I also think it's critically important as we engage in this conversation and as we embark on this conference to also engage in a critical reflection and thought on the fact that we're in a city named after Columbus, who is one of the preeminent colonizers 
of these lands. And it's critically important to reflect on and to think about the emotional impact that being in a place named after Columbus has on those of us who are indigenous scholars, indigenous students, indigenous peoples, as well as those of us who work in and with indigenous communities and spaces. So I would encourage everyone as you listen to this podcast and as you reflect on your time spent here in Columbus, I would encourage each of us to reflect on those who lived on these lands before the creation of the city of Columbus, Ohio, to think about those who remain. And I would also encourage us to remember that in spite of more than 500 years of forced and sustained attempts at acculturation, assimilation, and ultimately the attempts at killing indigenous peoples, that we remain strong and resilient. We remain a group of peoples who are diverse with their own cultures, our own languages, and our own knowledges and ways of knowing intact. Thank you. End of podcast. That's, I think, all we need to say. That's out. I'm out. That's a mic drop. We're done. Thank you, everybody, for listening. We're all going on. Boom. It was amazing. Oh, my gosh. That was fantastic. Just thanks for the intro. That was incredible. Having said that, I would like to, you know, I had an opportunity to introduce myself very briefly. But Dr. Francis and Dr. Mackey, would you like to say a little bit about yourselves, who you are, and how you approach this work before we get into the conversation? Sure, I'll start. So, Kwatsi Hapa, Tawashi Washrop, Wahindame Lee Francis, Washesh Kawakame, Medikaname. For all those that were out there, that is my traditional introduction. My family, I'm Dr. Lee Francis. My family's from the Pueblo of Laguna on my dad's side. Right now, I reside in North Carolina on other traditional homelands. We switched places, Susan. So, I did I'm, not realize that. Yeah, it was just, just this summer. So, right now, I'm out here in the, just outside of Chapel Hill. So, I'm here in the. I'll you know, have to connect you with my mother. She'll be happy to feed you. Uh, that'd be awesome. I'd love that. So, definitely my pathway towards education, I began in early 2000 teaching at my homeschool, Laguna Akama High School. Worked my way through educational leadership. My PhD is from Texas State University in educational leadership and school improvement. And then along the way, I started a comic shop. I don't know what happened there. So I still do a lot of education, but supporting that education with pieces like work, you know, resource materials for schools, for educators to be able to teach off of that tell stories of Native and Indigenous peoples in a visual way. So using comic books, graphic novels as well as games, as well as, you know, the multitude of how we approach education and learning for young people. And and a lot of it, trying to find ways to tell those stories that have been erased, whether intentionally or through history, you know, just the, the historical gaps that happen when we don't get to control our own publishing or our own stories for 400 years. So there's a lot of work that I still do with that. And of course, I continue to do a lot of, you know, digital teaching and, and conversations and, you know, espousing about natives and pop culture. So that's pretty much what I do now. Thank you. Dr. Mackey. Yeah, I'm also very happy to be on this podcast. And, and I think that it's importantly just to touch on, you know, the ways that we educate, like what leadership is, looks so different, right? Depending upon our context. And I think that it's, it's really valuable what, what you, you bring to the table. And I know my students, so I'm an associate professor at North Dakota State University. 
And many of my students have now been exposed to just about everything I can order and purchase from Native Realities. And, yes. and in particular, you know, like the co-talkers, the, the dear mm -hmm. woman, and, and, and even, even the, the less, less heavy work has been a great way for us to address topics of indigenous in schools. And so for me, that's, that's where my work centers is really looking at federal Indian policy as it relates to education. And then more specifically lately getting into states now that we have several states who have passed legislation about teaching of indigenous cultures and histories within in their districts. So I'm, I don't know how I got here. <laughs> I heard Susan was at Penn State and I, I needed to go meet her. So I went to Penn State and I went and met her. And, and here we are almost 20 years later. Brilliant. Uh, and not looking a day older than either of us looked 20 <laughs> years ago, right? Nope. <laughs> right. So, so, go ahead. Go ahead, Holly. No, go ahead. Well, no, I was just, I, I wanted to take us back a little bit, you know, the so we have conversations a lot about land acknowledgments about a lot of the issues in our communities and i think that this is an opportunity through a podcast right to to also provide a teaching resource and 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 help share our ideas about some of the things that we care deeply about and so i wanted to circle back a little bit to the the land acknowledgement and and lee you had been talking a little while ago about why why land acknowledgements fall short right, in some ways, mm -hmm. and what we need to do to, to do more. And then as Susan was sharing the land acknowledgement, I saw how excited you were getting. And, and so I, I just want to hear your commentary on, on that land acknowledgement. Yeah, it's really interesting because I, I think there's a, a way that the land acknowledgements have, have evolved um, in terms of the way that you know, I think a lot of times when we were when we were in space and we were originally doing them as a native group, we always kind of do that, right? Like we open with you know a, an acknowledgement or invocation or you know where we're at, who's you know who's in the room, who we are, etc. Right? There's there's that introductory piece. So I think we've always we've always done that in our little subsections and our little subgroups. But the first time I really saw a land acknowledgement was 2016, like legit at a big conference in Australia of, you know, cause they'd been doing it for a while. It was like the government, you know, it was this government writers event and they stood up and they were like, I'm the so-and-so, the PM, you know, from such and such. And I have acknowledging you know, this, this people here and this people here and, and whatever. And I was like, why aren't we doing something like that? What is happening? It's been remarkable how fast this has grabbed hold in terms of major events that we're at, right? Like this idea of these spaces where when we talk about diversity, equity, inclusion, or social justice or anything, this sort of land acknowledgement. But there's a part where we're starting to see, and I've had questions about this from other groups, that it's starting to get performative in some ways. And I think there's a pushback. You can see it on social media where it's coming in, where it's like people are asking for a land acknowledgement to check a box rather than to really be reflective, um, which is why I got so excited. I was, you know, it's the reflection piece, Susan, that you added in that, which is that reflective piece is, listen, take a moment to meditate and be reflective on all the gifts that have been bestowed because you are on land that was already populated, that was already cultivated. You know, this, the mythology of this, you know, unbridled, uninhabited territory is a myth. It is a mythology. It is American mythology. And, and so for me, I think a lot of it is continuing to, you know, like seeing land acknowledgements that are, that allow for a moment of reflection 
but that also are, are dealing with just the realities of what erasure has done and multiple erasures. Because I feel like we, when we essentialize and check a box, I wanted to say this, that's why I was really excited at the beginning of naming all of the people that had passed through the area. Cause I, I had a great, like this, so I had a great conversation with some of my Comanche relatives, right? And so in their conversations, you know, they're in Albuquerque doing a land acknowledgement. How did they do that, right? They acknowledged the Pueblos because technically the Comanche, that's their territory, right? Like, who are they going to acknowledge? They're like, all right, so the people that are living here now, but technically it's all ours. And so we were chuckling about that because I could also say that in Albuquerque, it's, you know, it's traditionally Tewa, but so many people pass through that were various Pueblo ling linguistic groups, right? And who do you identify as Tewa? It's a linguistic group, not necessarily a, a specific Pueblo. So it starts to get really murky. So I was just like, if it's performative and you're just gonna be like, it's, we're acknowledging the people. I was like, who's who? Who are the traditional custodians? Who hasn't passed here through before? Because what you're doing is identifying as one people as a relic of the past, rather than saying like, you know how many people pass through Columbus, Ohio for trade? You know how many native folks that we are already seeing? They keep finding, they keep discovering that we've been around here in this continent longer than science told us before. And I was like, yeah, we knew that. We've been telling you all that, man, as long as I've been alive. My, my dad was railing against that. It's like, no, no, we have stuff that goes back like 20, 30,000 years. I was like, well, history only says 5,000, et cetera. So I think the importance of something like that is, is how are we you know, highlighting, and especially for leadership, how do you highlight the complexities of the people that were systematically destroyed and then systematically erased and that their identity was used to promote, you know, gas stations and notebooks and sports teams, right? So I think the land acknowledgement goes deeper, you know, and I think Susan, that kept, I was super stoked because I was like, it's a moment of reflection. This is a time when we should really be thinking about this. Things happen. That's what happens. Are we trying to make it better or not? And if we're not trying to make it better, then what are we doing here? I think that's, that, was, that, that was what I read in all the subtext. So that's, there's a lot of subtext in there. I like that. No, and I appreciate that, Lee. I think one of the things that you also said before we went live was a land acknowledgement should not be limited to acknowledging those who existed here in the past or those who traveled through these lands, but also acknowledging the existence of tribes and tribal nations and citizens today, that there is an urban Indian population that continues to reside in the Columbus area and in Ohio. And oftentimes I think these narratives are constructed in ways that when we think about Native peoples, we only think about us as being in the past. And so that, that was a good reminder for me that when we do these land acknowledgements, that we need to be mindful of the past, but also the present, right? And that what we do on these lands today, even at an academic conference, has um, implications for the future, right? I think about the ways in which we talk about the education of children today or indigenous children, or the, the ways in which we talk about indigenous leadership or don't talk about indigenous leadership, right? In a conference like this has implications for the way in which my child and your child and our children will be educated. That has implications for the future of our tribes and our tribal nations. 
And too often we don't have those conversations beyond the group of indigenous scholars mm -hmm. who are here. Mm -hmm. And so it, it, that was a, a good reminder to me when you said that, not just thinking about who was here, but thinking about who is here. And I would take it a step further, thinking about who's going to be here in the future. That's yep. critically um, important. Yeah. I also wanted to say before we turn it back over to Holly, that you know one of the things that we also talked about before we went live, and and you referenced this, Lee, was this notion of the performative nature of land acknowledgments. And I was saying, and, and for anyone who knows me, I, I'm nothing if not honest and transparent, that the presentation or the offering of the land acknowledgement today at UCA was was difficult for me. I'm just being really honest with that. It was difficult because in an ideal world, a land acknowledgement wouldn't occur the way that it did today. There would be more time, right? It, there would be more mm -hmm. thought, more opportunity mm -hmm. for reflection. It would not be me as a visitor on these lands offering a land acknowledgement. It would be the peoples of this land mm -hmm. offering. And so, you know, I, I share these remarks in a spirit of humility and in asking forgiveness of those Native peoples who are here. Because I think about the example you shared, Lee, of, of being in Australia and hearing a land acknowledgement. And I've spent quite a bit of time in New Zealand and when, when land acknowledgements are given there, there is an asking of permission That's it. Yep. to enter those lands. And, mm -hmm. to, and we as an organization have not asked for that permission to be on these lands, to work on these lands, right. or to acknowledge these lands, right? Mm -hmm. And so as a Native scholar, I feel conflicted by that. I feel conflicted by acknowledging lands on which I'm not Indigenous to these lands. I'm not a member of this community. I feel conflicted as an indigenous scholar offering a land acknowledgement on behalf of my colleagues. And there are others who might do that acknowledgement in a different way. And so I would encourage us moving forward to really grapple with that, right? Like if we as a group of academics can't grapple with some really hard issues, who can? And so I want us to grapple with it, to think about what's the appropriate way to not do land acknowledgements as an add-on or an afterthought or a checking of the box activity. And then I'll end by going back to something else you shared, Lee, is how do we move beyond the words, mm -hmm. the words of acknowledgement? Yep. So are there actions that we can take as an organization to really demonstrate to the communities in which we're entering that we see them, we hear them, we value them, and we want to engage with them. What's, what's a way in which to do that? Is it a research activity? Is it a day of service? Is it an honorarium? Is it the creation of a space on the agenda? Is it moving out of a hotel and going into an indigenous community so that the people who could use our work can actually access it? So, but that requires very intentional and deep and reflective practice, right? Which may not be comfortable for us um, as academics. Well, and, uh, Holly, if you don't mind me jumping in, because there's something that while you're talking, Susan, that, that strikes me too, because it's something I've been struggling with around like native and indigenous representation, especially in popular media. And I think 
it's both a failure of language and a failure of intent is that the way in Australia, it's an asking, New Zealand the same, it's an asking for the land. I think we've conflated this idea here when we say land acknowledgement, we're not actually acknowledging the land, we're acknowledging a group of people. And so we're getting this really cross associative that is embedded in the American mythological consciousness of native people as the noble savage, right? That we are here, you know, as the custodians and the great sacred guardians of this place called America, you know? And I'm like, but that's, I mean, kind of true, not true. I was like, well, we kind of were here, you know, we were here before we colonized, I mean, like we didn't colonize place. We set up houses on the place, right? Learned how to live in as much harmony as we could see, you know, in balance and, you know, and what we were doing. But there's a part where because pop culture we regress to the mean about how native people exist, right? So as we're taking this step and saying, well, we're trying to correct a mistake, a colonial mistake by acknowledging that there were indigenous people here to bring out of erasure, simultaneously reinforcing the preconceived notions of native people as being part of the land. And it's really interesting. And this will be the last thing kind of, and we can kind of pass it on. So if you remember Barack Obama's book, the kid's book that he wrote, and I use this always as the example. He wrote a kid's book, I don't know, a couple of years before he left the presidency. And he's highlighting the brilliance of America and all of the various races and everybody that kind of makes up. You have an African-American kid, you have a you know, Latina kid, you have an Asian kid, and they all get to be their, their children. And there's not a native kid. There's not a native person in that section. It's sitting bull as the mountain. Mm. You can go back and look at the image, right? And, it's, and that's the native... American representation is it's a picture of a native you know I think it's sitting bull but I was like in embedded in the mountain and I was like everybody else gets to be a person and we get to be the land and so I think there's something deeply psychological around that that uh, that embeds us in this space almost like we're still ghosts in our own houses and I think that's the problem there's a little itch there's a little itch when I when we're doing land acknowledgements that don't do a reflective piece or that are you know that are that are more performative aspect is there's a little itch and I'm just like this is starting to feel like I don't necessarily belong here anymore either like wouldn't it be better if I was just a ghost in the shell right or a part of the you know that if I was just like you know that I'm that I'm just a part of the land and I see that and that is such a pop culture type of thing it's reflective in so much of the media that I don't think people even recognize it. And people for best of intentions don't even recognize they're regressing to a pop culture meme that they don't even know they're a part of because it's so indoctrinated through all of the materials that they've read, all the materials that they've been exposed to. The stuff mm-hmm. that they're exposed to through popular media is the dead and dying Indian narrative. Pretty constantly. I was like, we've kind of changed that in about the last five years. It's a lot less, but it's still present. And it's still present in the books that we got in schools. It's still present in the learning materials that constantly show up in libraries that we're not seeing these changeovers so right and and Lee before we turn it over to to Holly I think I like that analogy that you used about being ghost in our own land but then you also made a reference to the itchiness of it right I think I felt itchy this morning during the land acknowledgement I feel itchy during land acknowledgements because I'm left with this question of so what? What's next? Right. And I'm yep. not saying that we should not give land acknowledgements. I think no. it is critically important to situate 
the lands on which we're in, right? And that we are guests on these lands. I think what you said though, is there's a distinction because we still, the emphasis, even in my words, we're still on the people who, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. as opposed to the physical space of the land. Right. And so that that's a good learning lesson for me. Like I, as an indigenous person can learn how to do this better. Uh-huh. But I think as a scholar and as an indigenous person, I'm left feeling really itchy with the, so what, what next? So we take seven minutes to acknowledge the land or the people, and then we move on to the next activity. And then we don't have to engage in that conversation until the next year. And so what, what does the work look like? How is, how is the work impacted by the acknowledgement? How, is our, how, how are our actions impacted? by that acknowledgement. What happens when there's not indigenous scholars in this space to give that acknowledgement? And so, yeah, I really like that itchiness, right? It's like this this itch that's just, it starts and it's small and you can make it feel a little better, but then it starts to spread like poison ivy, right? And then it Mm -hmm. it just gets over your whole body and you're like, I'm not comfortable in this space, but then there's nowhere to go because you want to be in this space but being in this space is complicated you want to push back against performativity but there's a fear that if you push back then there won't be a space for that acknowledgement and so we also talked about like that places us as indigenous scholars and indigenous peoples right in a very conflicted space that's not a space of our own making it's a space, I think, in which we're complicit. We're complicit in allowing those practices to be sustained, but it's not a conflict that we created, if that makes sense. And so how do we, how do we scratch our way out of that, right? I think, <laughs> you know, I, I can go on with this analogy. We as Native people can go on with analogies for a long way. How do we, how do we move beyond that? Well, I mean, I think that there's, I mean, staying with the land acknowledgement idea, but I and listening to the ways that you guys are talking about it, there's also, you know, we had talked before about like the counter erasure or the policing of the acknowledgements. And so I know part of that, that itch for me is knowing that I want to say certain things, but I'm always policing myself on how do I say this in a way that is going to be acceptable so people will hear. And then I get very angry with myself. And so I'm typically very happy to stand with people doing land acknowledgements, but I don't have the filter that ancestral rage right, comes through. And, and so that's the piece for me that makes it even more complica- complicated is really thinking about all of the ways that once we're asked to do a land acknowledgement or once we begin the process, we're not asking for any sort of permission. We aren't engaging with the community and we're reading the room to see if we need to make like quick pivots because it's it's not acceptable enough. Like it, it might ask you to reflect too deeply. And so when your land acknowledgement today hit on the fact that we're in Columbus, Ohio, during Native American Heritage Month, shortly after you know Indigenous Peoples Day, I immediately looked up to scan the room and like how is this landing with people? Because I don't think it's something that like if we were planning a conference we would not have it in Columbus, Ohio. It would automatically be off the map, right? And and I don't know that we would do that consciously, mm-hmm. but but I can see someplace like 
you know, Minneapolis, which is, you know, a Lakota mm -hmm. word, right? Or like Seattle, I can see us going there, but, but I think it gets complicated even in how we teach about it. Because the other thing I, I really started thinking about, well, I started thinking about my own institution's land acknowledgement. I was part of the committee and the indigenous people on the committee feel that it largely fell far short of what it should be. And so there was that tension with what is institutionally acceptable and what, what should it do? And it seems as if we're in this constant negotiation where you're not allowed to have both. Like you can't be honest. We can't tell the truth because it disrupts non-Indigenous sensibilities in a way that makes it uncomfortable. And so I know like at my institution, you know, we intentionally use like Ochete Shikoi Right, in there and it's difficult for some people to say. So we, we provide the phonetic pronunciation for them on our websites. And, and so we've done a lot in that way, but we also still limited to tribes that are in North Dakota, which are not our borders. We don't recognize those borders. So some of the, the tribes that you mentioned in the land acknowledgement today are also indigenous to the Fargo area. And, and so it was if we're always policing ourselves or being forced to be policed into like arbitrary boundaries that we didn't create and, and to, to really remain a part of the land, to remain a ghost, because you know what happens on paranormal shows, right? Then they get chased out, they get exercised. Right? So, so they wanna keep us kind of hidden back here and they wanna keep us as ghosts. And then those who speak up a little bit too much and make their presence known, right? We're really good at exiting them out, out the door, whether mm -hmm. that's in, professional spaces, whether that is in community spaces. And so I want to take a little education turn on you because the other thing that I was thinking about on Indigenous Peoples Day, we were really lucky. We had Jane Harstad and Julian Guerrero on a panel for Indian Ed. And Jane is the director of um, Indian education for the state of Minnesota. Lee, I don't know if you if you knew that. And then Julian, of course, is the director of the Office of Indian Ed. And this is not about them. It was their conversation that led to this quote. So I wanted to make sure that I acknowledge kind of the context of where I got this. But Julian said something uh, to the effect of, we want to provide a future for our children where they believe that their dreams were meant for weaving. Mm -hmm. And wow. it just struck me that the conversations we're having about land acknowledgements really communicate to our kids our babies, the, the people for whom we do this work, it communicates to them the degree to which we are going to be complicit in further erasing them or not, or to what degree are we going to authentically engage in conversations about this, particularly in leadership, particularly in institutions of higher education, to where we can stay true to that line where when we're talking to our Indigenous youth, we can tell them that they can trust us with their futures, that their dreams are meant for weaving. And so I'm going to pop it back over to the two of you because I, I just think the, the legacy that we leave through conversations like this, whether they're uncomfortable for people or not, that legacy is far more important because we are responsible to our communities in ways that you know many, many other groups might not believe themselves to be. Yeah, that's a great, yeah, I love it. That's a great, that's a really great set that the made for weaving. And I think inherent in that is that there's other dreams, right? So that quote itself breaks the westernized narrative of the sole individual, 
right? It's again, so my whole thing right now is really about, you know, it's myth busting, right? It's these American mythologies, these mythologies to pull yourself by your bootstraps, but like nobody's done that in the history of this country. Like it, people have to build things together, but we continue to reinforce this narrative in, in this focus, this idea that we, you know, that, that our dreams are meant for weaving means that there are other dreams to weave with. Otherwise, you're just making one of those weird little things, you know, like the little the things we used to make out of like one strand of like yarn. You know, you just knit the one strand of yarn. Well, at the end of the day, it's still just the same strand of yarn. There's no other colors. There's nothing. You're bringing in more to it. And I think that is, I think, the most reflective piece, right? And the piece that you did, Susan, that's why I was just so thrown by it. It was like, it's reflective, but we have an obligation to think about this. We're weaving those dreams, know where they're coming from. And also thinking about, you know, we think about native centers and I just kind of want to hit this a little bit because this is what struck me is we think about these native centers, again, as if native folks don't exist, but the schools I've traveled to, there's usually like one or two native kids. And when we say native, I'm saying very specific, like North American, we're starting to see that our brothers and sisters from the South as Mexican indigenous are identifying much more. We jumped population as one of the fastest growing populations in the United States on this last census, because I think our indigenous relatives are finally being like, yeah, we should, we should also say we're indigenous because we kind of are. We're Mexican indigenous and we're living in Arizona or New Mexico. This is our background. We come from tribal people, right? And so now we're starting to see more of that representation. So probably a student in this space or a teacher in this space or an administrator in this space has, will say, you know, dynamic and authentic indigenous representation. Because we know a lot of people have maybe heritage, you know, could be real, could be not, could be mythologized within their own home spaces and family dynamics. But I would say it's, you know, it's authentic and it's lived. So it's dynamic. Like, you, you know, mm-hmm. when you, when all three of us are talking, you know, the bottom is that we're, I'm not just being like native on this call. I'm native all the time. And my mm-hmm. stuff always revolves around that. That's not to say that because you're native, you have to. It's more of just saying, when we're thinking about this in is addressing leadership and whatnot, again, how are we looking at that and how are we actualizing that in our leadership decisions to allow those dreams to be woven together? How are we focusing on these spaces that allow for a broad swath of cloth and yarn and string and ribbon to be able to create something beautiful that could be, you know, especially for indigenous peoples and, and the representations, changing those representations um, and these, this rich tapestry, both of history, past, present and future. So, so, so how do I, how do I, uh, how do I top either of those comments? I, I think two, you know, two things I'd want to share. One is, you know, it's, this is not a weaving analogy, but was reflecting on the words of Dr. Debbie Reese, who is a Native scholar and also has developed the American Indians and Children's uh, Literature. So we can make that connection back to education again, right? The American Indians and Children's Literature website. And there's a quote that she has that reads, I want the air, um, and she uses another word, so I take some liberties with her quote, but she basically says, I want the air that our children breathe and the books that they read to nurture them and not hurt them. And I'll read that again. I want the air that our children breathe and the books that they read to nurture them and not hurt them. And I think about, to to put this back to education, 
like we are at the core of that, right? We write books, we write articles, we are instrumental in helping future teachers and leaders and scholars choose the materials that they present to our children. We are the ones who are creating much of that material. We being those of us here at UCEA and in ed leadership. And I think we need to be mindful about the work that we're putting out there. Are we putting words out into the air, out into the universe that are going to nurture our children? Are we putting words out there that will nurture not just the children, but the students in the classes that we're teaching, right? Are we putting words out there that are going to hurt people? And so I reflect back and, and I want to be really honest because I started out by saying I'm nothing else if not honest and transparent. And I know my words about the land acknowledgement at UCA may be viewed by some as being overly critical, right? I think it's important to say that as native peoples, I think we always live in an uncomfortable space, right? Particularly those of us who are in the academy, that we're always in this space of, I shouldn't say always, because I'm overstating it. I am always in this space of discomfort, this space where I become, the more attached I become to the academy, the more disconnected I become with my people, my indigenous peoples. I shared that with a group of Jackson scholars this morning that one of my greatest hurts in life is that I will never be able to return home to my homelands and be a faculty member because there's not a university there. I won't be able to see my parents grow old. My daughter won't be able to sit at my mother's kitchen table and learn from her. She won't be able to play on the land like I did. That's a choice that I've had to make to be a faculty member. And I will always regret that choice. But it is also an opportunity because it's allowed my daughter and myself and my family to have access to things that we would not have had if we had stayed in the community. But it's the more connected I get to the academy, the less connected I am to my community. The more connected I am to my community, the less connected I am to the academy. And so it's a choice, right? And, and it's an uncomfortable space. And for me, if I'm going to exist within this academy, then I have an obligation to trouble it and to critique it. And I think the things that we love most, we critique, right? We critique, it's, it's a critique of care. It's a critique because we want it to be better. We want it to be nurturing. We want it to grow. The things we don't care about, we just dismiss it. We let it go on. We don't critique it, right? And so the words that I offer that may come across as being critical about land acknowledgements are not intended as a criticism. It's intended as a loving critique about an institution and an organization that I care deeply about an organization and an institution that will ensure that the words that we speak, the words that we write will nurture our children and not harm them, right? That is difficult work to do. It is uncomfortable work. It is complicated work, but it's an obligation that we have as indigenous scholars to engage in that work. Otherwise, why are we here, right? 
And I think about what Holly said about that ancestral rage. I think Holly has the ability, and I so admire it, to exist in that space of rage, right? I mean, not to exist in it, but to operate in that space of rage and to be able to just tell it how it is. I have an ability to sugarcoat it, to make it more palatable at times. Lee, you have the ability to, I think, to go back and forth between those spaces, right? To, to, to have that rage, but to be able to say it in such a way that people are just in awe and mm -hmm. how you said it. And I think, that it, I think it requires all of those things, right? Those of us who can just let the rage be full on, those of us who can translate that rage into something else, and those of us who exist in another space, right? And so I'm just in awe of being able to talk, you know, with both of you and to work and to live um, in this space with you because there's just, there's so much, there's so much, there's so much joy in this work that we do, but there's also a lot of trauma and there's also a lot of loss. And I think as an indigenous peoples, we recognize that we cannot navigate this space individually, right? It takes the collective and all of our different ways of engaging in this space to make it doable. Um, so I, I thank you for that. I thank Holly for being the convener and bringing us together and reminding us about there is utility in that ancestral rage, right? It's just that that rage shows up in different ways for each of us. And I think as, you know, Vine Deloria had put it, you know, indigeneity is an evolving process. Being indigenous is an evolutionary space. We're still figuring it out. I think the same thing with land acknowledgements too. As we continue to grow and adapt and figure out what all these things are, the indigeneity that comes in and working with our colleagues mm -hmm. is, is an evolutionary process, a reflective process. And I think that's the thing we have to keep continuing to push forward to folks is it's a chance to learn and think together. We can weave together. So yeah, I'm down to weave whatever we need. Right. So Dr. Mackey, can you bring us home? I know we're at the end of our time. I know. I, how do you bring it home after that? We got itching, we got weaving, we've got ancestral rage, we've got code switching. But I'm going to go buy, buy some yarn and a loom. I was going to say, that just sounds like a day at, in, you know, at Navajo Fair. So like, right, you know, my right. today relatives, itching and weaving and ancestral rage. I was like, there you go. Oh, there that's, that's our next book together. Right? There we go. Oh, yes. But, you know, I, I would just echo exactly what you had said. We, I think not only can we not do it alone, but we are so very intentional about doing this work together that it it makes me even more proud of the work that we do because the ways that we model inclusivity the ways that we model leaning on whoever is strong at the moment or whoever will have the right words with the right audience at the moment is important to me and and i'm enjoying we have a a native jackson scholar which we have not for a while and and so just thinking through how do we build this this group and maybe this podcast is a way to reach people but yeah i've got nothing quippy or profound for an ending aside from how much i love just talking with the two of you thank you and it's vice good, versa it's good to laugh too it yes. is. in this space it's good to be able to laugh and to be able to be ourselves whatever ourselves looks like 
So thank you. And I, thank I think you. because we're doing a podcast, we should probably mention quickly. So any of you who would like to get a hold of me or Susan, obviously you know how to do that. We're pretty easy to find through UCEA. But I would also encourage you to reach out to Lee and his little comic book store is actually a really remarkable bookstore and has titles that I use in teaching all of the time. Red Planet Books and Comics. Redplanetbooksandcomics.com has our whole catalog. Oh, say it one more time. Red Planet Books and, the letter N, Booksandcomics.com. As we say, hashtag don't fear Red Planet because you're all standing <laughs> on one anyway. So... There you go. And also for, for folks who are listening in, Lee's always very generous with his time as well. So Please. reach out to yeah. him. Absolutely. All right. Thank you both. Cafe UCEA is a production of the University Council for Educational Administration. The senior producer is Monica Baron Jimenez. The executive producer is me, and I also edited the episode. Our episode producers were Susan Faircloth and Holly Mackey. UCEA's theme music is composed by Joseph Press. Thanks for listening. See you next time.